The Stone and Tile Show is proud to be sponsored by the National Tile Contractors Association. The NTCA is a leading trade association in the tile and stone industry dedicated to professional installation of ceramic tile and natural stone. With more than 1,500 members representing thousands of installers, NTCA works hard to be a strong voice for proper installation and qualified labor. The association invests in a professional staff to provide technical support and assistance and offers free educational seminars and regional training opportunities around the country. To learn more about what the NTCA can offer for you or your business, go to the website www.tile-assn.com. That's www.tile-assn.com. you the floor. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to everybody today. And uh, I want to thank Doug and Debbie and Fred for uh, working me in on short notice here. Like Doug mentioned, I've been a lawyer for 25 years and my practice is focused on representing cleaning and restoration contractors. And I got into that uh, somewhat by accident, but it's something that I really like because I have a background mm -hmm. in construction. And what I'm gonna do today is give a little overview of the issues that we're going to talk about in the legal webinar that I will be putting on for your group that uh, will come up uh, this Thursday. That's at 6 p.m. <coughs> Eastern, right, Doug? Correct. Yeah, this Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we're going to be examining some of the very tricky, interesting uh, liability and legal issues that are presented by this virus. So uh, before I get into this, I want to mention that we are obviously not in a confidential setting here. So uh, we'll stop for some Q&A at the end, but please keep your, uh, your questions hypothetical. You don't want to share any confidential information about your company or anything that could potentially uh, be incriminating, particularly because this is being recorded. This is not intended to be legal advice here today, but I'm going to give you a general checklist of issues that you can discuss with your lawyer. I'm licensed to practice law in California and Hawaii, and I work in conjunction with lawyers in other states to help them prepare their contracts for cleaning and restoration work. So let's talk about a few uh, simple fundamental issues that uh, my hundreds of restoration contractor clients are getting into uh, with respect to the coronavirus. And um, Debbie, if it would be possible to mute some of the people who aren't uh, speaking, we're getting a little bit of background noise in there. So, anyway, oops, the, I, I muted you. <laughs> yeah. So, leave that alone. Right. Anyway, um, the the first kind of threshold issue that I think should be uh, considered carefully is whether or not you have proper insurance coverage for uh, the coronavirus. 
And this gets a little bit tricky. You want to contact your insurance broker and see if you are covered uh, for viruses. And those of you who are doing water damage, you may have a pollution policy, uh, but the pollution policy may or may not actually mention that you have coverage for viruses. So I'm going to break this down into three basic categories of uh, coverage. One is uh, a policy that actually says, yes, you're covered for viruses. Another one, uh, another category or group of policies out there is silence on it. And then in the third group, it's explicitly excluded. And I want to talk about the middle group for a second. If you don't have it in there, I get questions from people saying, well, viruses are not mentioned in my policy as an exclusion. Therefore, they're covered, right? Well, the answer is maybe. Some of the insurance companies are telling people mm -hmm. behind the scenes that they recognize that if their policy is silent on uh, viruses, that there may be grounds for coverage and that they may have liability. And I'm connected with some people who have uh, some information I think is pretty reliable. And what at least one of these liability insurance carriers is saying is that, yeah, we know we're probably gonna have liability on these, but we're gonna deny all these claims anyway. Why do they do that? Well, one of the big reasons they do that is they get away with it a lot. And <clears throat> you'll see uh, as I speak that I have kind of a bias when it comes to the insurance industry. So, so take that into account as you listen to my words. Insurance companies make money by denying claims. And you don't want to subject your employees to um, coronavirus exposure or subject your customers to it unless you have proper insurance coverage. It's not enough to call your insurance broker <clears throat> and just have them tell you verbally, yeah, you're covered for it. You want to have something in writing that says that. So send an email to your broker or to your insurance company <clears throat> that asks, do we, do we have liability insurance coverage for claims that are arising out of viruses or are related to viruses? And I think you are facing an uphill battle unless you're policy actually says, yes, you have coverage for viruses, but you're still not out of the woods because um, every year your policy expires and it needs to be renewed. And when it gets renewed, you're going to see that the insurance company is introducing a new set of terms and conditions. And what I'm told by a reliable source is the insurance companies are running away from viruses. It has become a hot potato. So just because you have coverage in your policy today for viruses doesn't mean you're going to have it tomorrow if you are on the verge of a renewal because they'll pull that coverage away from you. And there's only one company that I know of now that uh, is actually writing coverage for this or was as of a couple of days ago. There were two doing it and one of them already pulled out of it. And they asked me, the one that is writing coverage, asked me not to mention their name um, because they don't want to get flooded with applications and they don't have the bandwidth to handle more than a few hundred applications a day. If they get 3,000 in a day, <laughs> there's trouble with it. Anyway, uh, you ask around and, uh, and you can find 
uh, some coverage for this, but um, it's going to cost you and that's something you want to figure into your calculus before you decide uh, whether or not you're going to be sending people out and uh, potentially getting exposed to this. In terms of your workers, um, as a general rule, workers' compensation insurance is an exclusive remedy, meaning that in most cases, absent fraud, an employee cannot sue the employer for a work-related injury or illness. Um, in these types of cases with coronavirus, I think it might be worthwhile to ensure that you have something in your personnel file to indicate that you have notified your employees that they may be exposed to this virus and that presents a risk. It's a little bit outside of my area of expertise. I would talk to a labor lawyer or an employment lawyer about that and the kinds of disclosures you need to make because you may not have the full benefit of workers' compensation protection from all of those claims if the employee is able to establish that you fraudulently concealed or failed to disclose a dangerous workplace condition that exacerbated an illness. And that can actually create uh, civil liability where you don't have full workers' compensation protection. So that's a, a quick overview of the insurance part. We'll be getting into that a little bit more uh, with the, the, the deep dive webinar that we're doing Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern. So now, next threshold issue is worker training. The situation and the evolution of the science for cleaning and disinfection of this virus is very much in flux. There's a lot of conflicting opinions out there and um, it's kind of in a state of evolution. So it's good to study up on it and, and get some good training. And I'm talking to the different training organizations, asking them, what do you think is the appropriate training for this type of work? And um, they're hesitant to even recommend a program for it. One contractor client I know that does a lot of large scale coronavirus cleanup work in the, uh, the DC area says that he thinks that the 40 hour has whopper training is, uh, is appropriate for this kind of work. Keep in mind that when you're dealing with infection control, this is a whole separate area of cleaning and it triggers all sorts of um, special liability issues and requirements for personal protective equipment and specialized techniques to address this. This is not something that anybody wants to jump into uh, unless they're doing it thoughtfully and carefully. I highly recommend that each company that's offering any kind of virus-related services, whether it's proactive uh, cleaning or whether it's actual attempts to disinfect after there's been a confirmed case, is to um, get to know a qualified environmental consultant or certified industrial hygienist who can help you develop your methods uh, for the work and advise you on the proper ways to do it. One thing I think is a really good idea is to do a dry run, actually do a test in your home or your office or wherever uh, and suit up and follow the procedures and try it out so you're not uh, testing on a customer's property. And it's, it's very worthwhile to have your own personal uh, consultant 
who's well-trained in the environmental issues to advise you about how to select products, how to apply products, and how to use the, uh, the different equipment that's involved. So that's a little bit on the training part. So let's kick around some of the, uh, the liability issues. I think that um, a great place for you to find information is on the website for the Restoration Industry Association, the RIA, I'm very active with that group. Their website, and I'm gonna go ahead and type it into the, the chat section here, is restorationindustry.org. There's a lot of helpful resources on restorationindustry.org, um, which includes some uh, information and reports from some experts that have uh, convened to talk about the information that's available so far on the proper techniques to address coronavirus contamination issues. And one of the big ones that raises a lot of legal questions in my mind <clears throat> is what are we going to call this work? The typical restoration uh, work authorization form will say that the restorer is going to return the property to its pre-loss condition. Well, is that what you're going to do when you are uh, attacking coronavirus at a particular property? If so, how are you going to be able to establish that you fulfilled your contractual obligation? Are you going to be doing any testing? And if you are going to be doing any testing, what are the limitations of that testing? There's a lot of discussion out there around ATP testing. And we're gonna get into that a little bit more in the webinar on Thursday. Uh, ATP has the risk of showing some false negatives and some false positives. Some believe that it's helpful information as a surrogate for viruses. And other people are saying, no, it's, it's gonna to be too misleading or it's a waste of time. So if you have committed to return a property to its pre-loss condition. Let's fast forward six months and say you're sitting in a deposition and you're trying to recover money for the services that you performed according to that contract. And let's assume that the customer decided for whatever reason they don't wanna pay you for that work. The lawyer puts your contract in front of you and uh, reads to you the provision where you've described your services, whether it's disinfection or it's returning to pre-loss condition or whatever. And the lawyer will ask you, did you fulfill that obligation? Did you perform your contractual duty? Well, now you're in kind of between a rock and a hard place. If you answer no, uh, then you're not entitled to get paid. If you answer yes, then the lawyer's gonna say, how do you know? How do you know that you disinfected it? Just because you went in there and you applied a bunch of product or you did a bunch of wiping or fogging or whatever your chosen method is, how do you know that it disinfected it? How do you know that you've removed the viruses? And so I'm really keeping my fingers crossed that there will be some, some meaningful, affordable testing methodologies that are available. Let's talk about one of the very simple problems in um, post cleaning testing for viruses. Let's say you're able to perform a swab test on a surface. Let's say it's on a desk and it comes out negative. Well, that doesn't tell you 
the condition on the floor, on the walls, on the lamps, on the doorknobs. It just tells you what's right there on that desk. These viruses are everywhere. Pretty soon they'll be ubiquitous. And proving that you have decontaminated a structure uh, of this virus is a pretty tricky process. So you want to word your contract very carefully to uh, steer around that so you don't overcommit yourself. And I like to tell my clients to underpromise and overdeliver. And after many, many hours of pondering this before I sat down to write my first coronavirus service contract, I decided that the theme of the agreement and the structure of the business arrangement would be as follows. The service provider is providing a process rather than a result. You can prove that you cleaned and wiped and fogged or whatever your particular process was. Some guys I'm talking to right now are even talking about using body cams. And it's really important to have some pictures of you actually doing the work because unlike when you're trying to uh, clean a piece of tile that looks dirty, um, you're not gonna have a photograph to prove that you finished your work. I think it's helpful for some of this for us to compare uh, this to mold remediation projects and to consider how it's different from lead abatement or asbestos abatement. For those of you who do mold remediation, you can take a picture of a wall that has mold on it, and then you can remove the mold. And then you can take another picture of the wall showing that there's no more mold on the wall. You have before and after photos. That's evidence that you performed your contractual duty. But what about for the coronavirus? It's very different. You can't see it, smell it, touch it, feel it, photograph it. You probably can't even test for it. Therefore, I like to say we're selling a process rather than a result. One contractor told me confidentially what he's giving his customers really is a placebo effect. Not good. Don't say that. We want to give more than placebo effects. We want to give something that is, is measurable and verifiable. So think about how you're going to word your work. And if you look at restorationindustry.org at some of the resources there, you'll see a document that's a preliminary report. And what they recommend there is to describe the work as the application of a disinfectant. Application of a disinfectant is technically different from disinfecting. If you go in and you say, I'm going to disinfect your property, and somebody goes in there and gets sick, they might be able to make a claim that you failed to disinfect it and that you made them sick, or worse, there could even be a fatality involved. So the potential liability exposure here is significant, but in my opinion, it's going to be extremely difficult to establish a causal link that's required in court to show that somebody was made ill or suffered any sort of medical problem as a result of some particular act by some particular contractor or cleaning company that did something. The reason for that is this virus is all over the place. It's extremely contagious. And so just because I have it doesn't mean that I got it from the guy who was in here yesterday cleaning my tile. So think about that and the fact that people are catching this illness 
literally all over the world, and it's spreading like wildfire. So we don't want to panic too much about liability. We want to uh, consider the capabilities of the technology that we're going to use. We want to consider the limitations of it. We want to disclose those limitations to the customer in writing in the contract that they sign before any work gets done so that you're not faced with a fraud claim later on or some other allegation that you have promised something that you were unable to perform. One of the disadvantages you have is that if one of your projects leads to a legal dispute, that the people who are going to be evaluating that are going to have the benefit of hindsight. People are in a rush right now to do this work. The training and the guidance material is limited. And some of these building owners are in a hot rush to get their buildings cleaned up and decontaminated. Uh, but they can take their time later on to study the literature and look for ways to criticize the work done by a company that goes into clean. One of the other problems that you face, <laughs> along with those, is that there are going to be charlatans out there who will be scamming people for money, claiming that they are disinfecting their properties. And if you think about it, any joker with a pump sprayer full of water could show up at your house or at your grandmother's house tomorrow morning and knock on the door and say, I can disinfect your house. I can kill all the coronavirus uh, that's in your house and I'll do it for $500. And, but you have to be out of a house right now. Well, when that happens, they can go in and do absolutely nothing. And there's no way for your grandmother to figure out if the work got done. No way whatsoever. Can't smell anything. You say, this is an odor-free um, product that we're using here. And uh, just take my word for it, we did it. Well, this is going to hit the press. There's going to be some sting operations out there. I absolutely guarantee it, particularly in some of the more consumer-friendly environments. I'm thinking California, I'm thinking Florida, these types of places. And, and I just mark my words that there are going to be like contractor state license boards that will set up sting operations with hidden cameras and they will have some, um, some actor call up and say, yeah, I want you to come uh, decontaminate my house. And they'll pay them the money and they'll, they'll create video recordings of what they're doing and show that it's a scam. And that's going to get on the news. Scammers are out there preying on the elderly, charging $500 for false services, you know, assuring seniors they will decontaminate their properties, taking their money and performing absolutely nothing. You know, film at 11 and you'll have, you'll have a dozen perpetrators walking by with handcuffs. This is, this is a dream come true for a district attorney, this kind of thing. The problem is that that's going to hurt the reputation of the good companies out there, or not directly those companies, but the, the industry as a whole is, is going to suffer from that and there's gonna be suspicion. So when good companies like you are presenting your bills and people aren't able to verify what you did, you want to make sure that you've got something in your contract that covers your bases so that you set some, some reasonable, realistic expectations right up front. 
The analogy that I like to use for this is pest control. When I hire uh, my pest control company, they don't guarantee me they're going to get all the ants. What they do is they treat the property. They apply the product. And presumably they're going to do it in a good and workmanlike manner in a good faith effort to try to eradicate the pests. They do not guarantee that they will eradicate the pests, nor should any of you guarantee that you are going to disinfect any of these properties. I'm gonna hit just a couple of other points and then turn it over for some Q&A. I think your contract should take into account the, the biggest issue with this, which is even if you do a perfect uh, job of eradicating and deactivating all of the virus in a given property, as soon as somebody comes into the property, all bets are off. They can come in and sneeze all over your work and potentially require a complete recleaning there. So you're gonna to wanna to talk about the financial and legal ramifications of that. I think it's worthwhile also to uh, consider putting into your contract something that talks about the, the security at the property. Let's say somebody comes in while you're in the middle of the work. You're trying to get everything as pristine and clean as possible. And then there's a back door open and a kid walks in or, or, or you lose control of, of the property. Who's in charge of the security and who's gonna be responsible if that security is breached? The last issue that I'm going to touch on uh, comes from my experience representing um, fire restoration contractors. And sometimes they will get sued based on allegations that they are performing Cadillac services when Honda services would be sufficient. That they are coming in there doing the most expensive possible method and failing to disclose to the customer that lesser expensive alternatives are available. Why is that important for coronavirus, you ask? Well, the reason is that a lot of scientists have reported that if you simply close up a building and walk away and leave it alone with no humans or animals in it, within a certain number of days, the virus will naturally deactivate. So think about this, you're back in your deposition scenario again, and you're trying to uh, get paid on a bill. And we'll say you, uh, you have a $100,000 invoice for this particular work. And you get asked, did you disclose to your customer that this work was not necessary? Puts you in kind of a difficult predicament. Did you disclose to your customer that they could have saved this $100,000 by simply closing up the building and walking away. Now, as a business decision, that may not be so much of a problem. Let's say you've got a casino that wants to get back online. Imagine the financial hemorrhaging these casinos are going through each day that they're closed, all right? It very much would justify the expense even if it's a high expense of decontaminating that or a hotel or even a school. Uh, but let's say you're working on a residential property, for example. The cost to decontaminate it or disinfect it or attempt to disinfect it or to apply disinfectant may actually be more than uh, paying for some nights in a hotel. So think about whether or not you would have in your contract a disclosure that explains to the customer that lesser expensive alternatives may be available 
that the customer has acknowledged that, understands that, and has elected to go forward with the work either as a business decision or to protect employees or something proactive. That would eliminate any kind of uh, issues uh, with fraud or uh, some of the issues at least with fraud and misrepresentation about that. So take a good look at the restorationindustry.org uh, website. You'll see a number of helpful resources on there. And I am uh, seeing some questions come in here. So I'm going to tackle these. <clears throat> Fred asks, if I'm not disinfecting an office or a home, do I still need virus insurance protection? For example, I'm just polishing someone's floor. All right. So I think in terms of uh, protection for your workers, uh, in most cases, absent fraud, you will be protected by workers' compensation. But study that a little bit more because workers' comp is not my area of specialty. But what about if somebody says, you know what, I have stayed in isolation and there is a shelter in place order in my state. I've had no visitors. I have no family. I have no friends. I've been all alone here. I haven't stepped foot out of the house. I haven't uh, done anything that would expose me to any kind of a problem. And I was perfectly healthy until you came in and polished my floor. And then I came down with COVID-19. And a, a lawyer could take that case and sue you for basically cross-contaminating their property, alleging that your employees had it on their clothes, your employees were carriers of the virus, uh, and that by negligently failing to uh, stay abreast of their medical conditions or to test them, you expose this person and you're therefore liable for it. Is that a winning case? I don't know. Is it a case that can be filed? Yes. Is there a way that we can prevent people from filing lawsuits? No. The courthouse is open until five o'clock. Um, and so I think if you're right now, today, if you're sending people uh, into, uh, into residences, uh, it would be really helpful if you had coverage for this. Is the exposure as high for commercial? Well, you know, you can get um, the, the illness, you can pick up the virus just as easily in a commercial building as you can in a residential building. So check out um, how much it's going to cost you to get coverage for this. And if you tell your insurance company that you plan to get a written statement from the customer that there are no confirmed cases of COVID-19 of any of the occupants there, and furthermore, the, the customer affirms in writing that no one has any symptoms. There's no fevers, there's no respiratory problems, and that it appears to be clean, and that you are not going out there for the purpose of uh, eradicating coronavirus, and you're only going out there to polish someone's floor, and you want to have coverage just in case somebody claims that you brought it into their place and you have um, good employee monitoring practices in place or on a weekly basis or whatever, maybe uh, your labor lawyer will advise you to have your employees fill out a sheet. 
in the last two weeks, have you had a fever? Yes or no? Have you had respiratory problems? And you, you check the boxes for some of the, the telltale symptoms of this. The, the insurance companies want to hear that you have a strong risk management program in place. They want to know that you have some good liability disclaimers in your contracts. They want to know that, that your people are properly trained, that you are being selective about the properties that you are choosing to send your workers into and to give them a comfort level that you're not likely to get sued. And if you do that, my hope is that, that you can get coverage without a fee that's too exorbitant. So that gives you um, an example that answers the next question. Can you give me an example of how I can be sued? If you are doing uh, coronavirus cleanup work or application of disinfectant, like RIA uh, wants to call it, what protocols do you have in place to ensure that your equipment is clean when you take it from one property to the next? How will you document that you actually perform those protocols? How are you going to make sure that the people are clean so they don't bring coronavirus into the environments and how they get clean before they get into your truck or your van to head back to your facility. And it would seem to me that this cleaning would happen outdoors, outside of the, the property where the work will be done, both before the work and after the work. I'm a former certified indoor air quality professional, but I don't hold myself out as a scientist in this, and I, I highly recommend that you, uh, you get together with a scientist who can, um, who can give you some good ideas on that. Um, I see a question here, do I have a right to sue my customer if I or my employee gets the virus? Uh, yes, you do if you have uh, reasons to believe that the person, uh, the, the customer was negligent. That's why I like this idea more and more about having a customer health questionnaire. And if they conceal from you that, uh, that they're sick or that there's been a health issue or even a confirmed case in that particular structure, uh, and you've got a questionnaire uh, that they signed where they've basically warranted and represented to you uh, that there are no issues, no virus issues in the property. I think that's pretty good uh, protection. If somebody goes in there and you find out that they were sick, uh, yeah, you could theoretically sue your customer. But goes back to the question I raised before of causation. How are you going to show that you got the problem from that particular environment? As soon as you go to the grocery store, you could pick it up there. One scientist I spoke to the other day says when you get a delivery in from Amazon, the virus could be on there and you could pick it up from that. So they're saying, well, you get food delivered, you leave the food outside on the front porch. And I did that last night with Grubhub. I said, just leave it out there. Well, okay, that keeps the person from sneezing on me, which I appreciate, but I'm still, you know, I've got the packaging and all of that stuff. Dr. Sanjay Gupta talks about wiping off uh, packaging before you bring it into your house. I've had a number of deliveries since I've been holed up here in my house the last couple of weeks. And I bring the boxes into my garage and I cut them open there and I take the contents out and I carry the contents in. Um, so we wanna be careful uh, about that sort of thing. So 
anytime uh, a person or uh, a piece of physical property moves from one location to another, the scientists are telling me there's a possibility of moving the virus along with it, and that's problematic. Um, do I need a contract if I'm doing standard restoration work, not disinfecting? Um, I think the question is, do you need a contract that is specific to coronavirus or has some coronavirus provisions if you're doing standard restoration work? Yeah, I think that, um, I think that most contracts um, are, are fertile ground for this, that you might want to give some thought as to explaining um, the, the risks and the, uh, the limitations of what you're able to do, uh, because if people are watching you do restoration work, you want to make sure that they understand exactly what you're giving them and not giving them. <clears throat> Next question, aren't you accepting liability if you're willing to go out and expose yourself to clients? and also prove where you got it. Yeah, that's what I was talking about um, a little while ago. No, you're not accepting uh, liability if you've got good documentation in order that um, limits your liability and outlines the customer's obligations and, and your obligations and draws a distinction there. Next question, aren't we acting irresponsibly by going out to perform non-essential services? Um, different, different states are defining uh, essential in a different way. Uh, but, you know, I think that, yeah, an argument can be made uh, if you're going out to perform non-essential services that that's that that's irresponsible. It's kind of above my pay grade to uh, talk about, you know, social responsibility per se. But, but the point that I'd like to leave you with is that you have the opportunity now to perform a vital service that is going to be widely needed for thousands and thousands of structures all over this country. These buildings are going to need to get cleaned up by trained professionals who are concerned enough to join groups like surfaces who want to have better training, uh, provide a better service, and, and really present a value proposition uh, to the customer. So make sure that your, uh, your contract has a good uh, value proposition in it so they're actually getting something for their money. And um, it's, it's better to do something to mitigate the problem, even if you're certain that you can't um, completely eradicate it. So I've gone way over the time we anticipated I would spend on this. And I hope that you will join us uh, as we get into some issues with um, disclaimers, limitations of liability, and different ways to uh, draw up uh, these contracts. And um, if you want to take, uh, if you want to contact me, my website is therestorationlawyer.com. Therestorationlawyer.com. My uh, telephone number is 760-773-4002. That's 760-773-4002. We're getting flooded with calls right now. If you leave a 
voice message and I don't get right back to you immediately, I, I appreciate your patience with that and uh, look forward to speaking to everybody uh, on Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern. And Are you looking for quality greenstone working products? ESP sells many lines of fine quality environmentally safe products. Stone Pro, MB Stone Care, Bondstone and Touchstone Adhesives, more Stone Care products, Easy Care products, and Better Bio, which is over 80% bio-based and approved by the USDA. For more info, visit ESPSales.net. That's ESPSales.net. Thank you, Tough Skin, one of our gold sponsors. Marble etches and stains, Tough Skin guarantees it will not. Tough Skin provides a unique product and installation service anywhere in the USA with a proprietary stone laminate products. They protect marble countertops with an acid, oil, and waterproof guarantee. That's right, it's now possible to install marble, onyx, and travertine countertops without the worry of etching and staining from common household items like wine, lemon, coffee, or other acidic foods. People have been trying to figure this out for thousands of years, and Tough Skin Surface Protection has done it. Available in gloss and satin to match the countertop finish. Visit them online at toughskinprotection.com. That's T-U-F-F skinprotection.com to learn more. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.